You're going to need your Bibles open to John 17. We are finishing off the chapter there, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and we're just in the last seven verses uh, where he wraps that up. And I'll just dive right in that the, the big idea in these verses is simply this thought that Jesus wants the world to know the love of God. That is basically uh, the summary statement of these seven verses. Jesus wants the world to know the love of God, and so he desperately wants the glory of God, the love of God, the unity of God to be on display through his people. And he has chosen to do this through his people, through the church, and so therefore in this context he prays for the unity of the church and for the unity of his people. So I'll just start by asking a simple question. Uh, What would it take for you to feel you were forced you had to leave a church? Based on what decision would you make it that it is time to uproot the fellowship that you're part of and actually walk away either discouraged or frustrated or maybe angry or whatever it might be, but what would cause you, what would be serious enough to cause you to leave the fellowship of a particular local church? Uh, Unity is an incredibly relevant topic for the church, obviously in every age and in every generation, and it is certainly relevant in the day and age that we live in. Uh, How can and will the church uh, manifest the unity of God that we are given? So Ephesians 4 is written all about maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Uh, Paul's admonition to the Ephesian church, would you maintain the unity that you have been given in the Spirit of God? And then he goes on to describe the church in this way, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is this one holy church maintain the unity of the spirit that we have. So with every other area of society, we see this disunity. So how can the church maintain the unity? And whether you're talking about the macro level of the geopolitical and military world, and you you think of either nationalism and isolationism on one end of the spectrum, or world engagement and global partnerships on the other, or you could talk about the cultural divide uh, right here in front of us on every day of the so-called progressive liberal way of thinking on one end, and however you define conservative thinking on on the other end. And where does the church fall in the middle of that? And the church could be asked the question, and people do ask the question of the church, if we truly believe the ancient creeds of the church, that we are the people of God and that we are called to the one holy apostolic Catholic church, as the ancient creeds say it, just one holy church, then how can there possibly be 9,000 denominations on the planet? Can't you Christians get your act together? What's wrong with you? Why does it seem like we are quick to fight and quick to divide? So David Watson gives a a really good summary statement to John 17, and he puts it this way, that Jesus said that love should be the hallmark of his disciples. And he prayed that by the loving unity of their lives together, others would believe and know the truth about him. He goes on to say this. He says, our unity in Christ is or should be an expression of the life of God. It is a vital way in which the invisible God manifests or makes visible his own nature here on earth. The church is or should be the word made flesh for today. Others should be able to look at our fellowship of love and say, that's what God is like. It'll not be the total truth about an infinite God, of course, 
but it will be perhaps the most meaningful and relevant truth that can touch the minds and hearts of all people, all races, backgrounds, cultures, and languages. Love is a universal language. God's love amongst God's people is always the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. So we're going to run through the final verses of Jesus' prayer, and we're going to hammer away at this central theme that Jesus wants the world to know the love of God, and he wants to do it through his church. So if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to read the last seven verses of John 17, beginning there at verse 20. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world." O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, the central theme is so clear in that reading that the unity of God's people declaring the love of God to a watching world, but there, there, there are several underlying themes, and I'll just mentioned two or three of them that kind of undergird the text. The first is a very obvious, simply this, Jesus prays for us. Uh, It opens there with, this is what Jesus does. In his earthly ministry, so many references in the Gospels of Jesus taking time aside to pray. Certainly in his exalted, after the resurrection, the ascension that he sits at the Father's right hand, uh, we are told that this is his present-day ministry. What Jesus does is praise for us. So I'll put three references up on the screen. Romans 8, Hebrews 7, John 1. All of these talk about the present ministry of Jesus Christ, that he is seated at the Father's right hand, that he lives to intercede for us. Uh, John 2 says that We have an advocate with the Father, that he intercedes on our behalf between us and the Father. Jesus prays for us. What does he pray? Well, John 17 gives us a good glimpse into what he prays. The second inference in this text, which was really easy to just read past quickly, is that the gospel is and will be effective. Uh, You see the hopefulness in Jesus' voice there in uh, verse 20. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Those who will believe. And the implication that Jesus is making is simply this, that he knows the word of God carried along by the people of God, carried out into the harvest field of the world, will result in the children of God being drawn. There there will be fruit from the gospel message. There will be indeed a harvest. There are going to be others come. The 11 are sitting in front of him, but he knows that another generation, there will be those who come, and that in every generation, in every city down to right, every little village, there are those who are marked for salvation, and all they need to do is hear the word of God It will bear fruit, he says. And then the third implication, which leads us into the greater idea of the text, is that the road upon which that gospel effectiveness travels, so the gospel will be effective, but the road upon which it travels is the road of unity. 
The gospel message goes out into a watching world with the power to transform, but it is carried along by the unified church of God, the people of God, walking in love, walking in fellowship, walking in community and in prayer. And so, Father, he says, I'm praying for those who will follow, those who will come later in generations, just like these ones in front of me, that they may all be one, just as you and I are one. Now, we could just press pause right there for a moment. Because he alludes to the unity of the Godhead. And so we could just stop right there on verse 21 and just do a deep dive and do a topical study onto the doctrine of the Godhead. What is it that we understand about our triune God? What do we know about the community of love expressed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even before the foundations of the world, it's referred to here. That Father, Son, and Spirit are all over this conversation. Now, you'll know it, having studied it the last six months from John 13 onward, this last evening conversation, the Father is there. Jesus knows it's time for him to return to the Father. The Spirit is there because he says, I'm going to the Father, but I'm not leaving you alone because another helper, just like me, of the very same essence of I am, will return the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, all over this text. And the great creeds of the church that we anchor our faith to, the the two most famous way back in the the second and third century, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, anchor us to our, our understanding of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the one holy church. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, our triune God, and the one holy church. And it is a unity that is both glorious and awe inspiring, and God puts his blessing on his unified church. Interesting that even in the Old Testament, Psalm 133, this interesting phrase, behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. So when brothers, uh, the, the generic term, they're brothers and sisters, men, women, boys and girls, the brethren, when they dwell in unity, how good and pleasant it is. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now look at this last phrase. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing in the unity of his family. When we dwell, how good and pleasant it is when we have this unity. God commands his blessing. Now, we've got to note that unity, however, is not the goal in and of itself. It's not just that we would be unified and in there. It is not simply that we would sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya. It is unity unto some goal. The final goal of the unity is that the world might see, that the world might know, that the world might believe. And and so if you notice as we're reading through the text, there were several so that's. In fact, that word that in the original language appears nine times in these seven short verses. That, 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 that. I am praying for them so that they may be one. And I want them to be one so that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them. There's a cause and an effect here. I want them to know this, understand this. I want them to live out this unity so that the world will see. I'm praying for these that you've given me. Make them one unto this purpose that the world might know. Okay, now I am assuming... Uh, sort of no-brainer, that you are intelligent people, you speak English, you understand what the word unity means, that I don't have to define it, but let's just, you know, state the obvious, that unity means that there is some level of common belief among us, that's when we're unified. We are in agreement, we are aligned, we are simpatico, 
We are in sync. We are of one accord. We are of one mind. We think and believe and act the same when it comes to whatever the particular issue that you might happen to be talking about in that moment. Now, we also know that unity does not necessarily mean uniformity. That we can be completely unified and yet not look exactly precise. We're not robots. We don't all look precisely and act the same. We can have divergent views on different issues and yet remain friends and co-laborers and co-workers. We can get along even though we're different. Uh, let me just illustrate it from just, you know, just simple day-to-day life. Uh, you could say, I am a sports lover and you're particular sport, whatever it is, football, hockey, baseball, basketball, doesn't matter, and you find another sports lover, and yet you cheer for opposing teams. Oh, my goodness. And yet you are both sports-loving people. You're unified in that. You could love fast cars, and you could argue whether a North American muscle car is better than a European-built car. You could argue it, but you could still be friends because you are drawn together by your love of fast cars. It's possible to hold divergent views and debate them. Uh, We all agree. We understand this. Ice cream is good. Country music is bad. We all understand this. And sometimes our unity is based upon a shared enemy. Have you thought about that? A common goal that we are trying to defeat, so in political and military strategy, of course, nations that would not align under any other, uh, they would not be in the room together, but because of a common enemy, they will come together as allies. So in the short time that we've got together, I want to just draw your attention to the two things I see in this text primarily are this, the basis of our unity and then the goal of our unity. And the basis of our unity is twofold. It is the word of God and the presence of God, or we might simply say the word and spirit. The word and spirit. Our our, our unity is based upon the word of God and the presence of God. So first and foremost, as followers of Jesus, we would look at the unique revelation that God has given to us in his word. It is this book that unifies us, draws us together. So as you think back through this entire prayer from John 17, one onwards, verse six, he says, I've manifested your name among the people that you've given me. How did he manifest the name of the Father? Well, the entire context, through the works that you've given me to do, I've done the works of the Father, and through the words that you have given me to speak. I've shown your works, I've shown your words. Verse eight, I have given them your words, and they've received them and believed them. Verse 14, I have given them your word, Father. Verse 17, keep them, Father. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we could spend a long time on this topic, and it is critical. But our unity is based on the revelation of God through Jesus Christ revealed by his Holy Spirit in the word. Let me say that again. Our unity is based on the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, revealed by the Holy Spirit through his word. In other words, this book matters to us. This book matters because it is through this book that we are revealed the things of God and understand. And so understanding it and digging into it, deep into it, and grasping what it teaches is critical. And therefore, doctrine, theology, right belief, orthodoxy matter. That's why two weeks ago, as we looked at that letter of Jude, he opens it by saying, I was going to write to you about our common salvation, but I felt compelled to write to you that you might contend for the faith once delivered, that you would study it, that you would grab hold of it. 
that you would hang on to it. So it is why, through the centuries, faithful followers of Jesus have tried to articulate what is it that we have come to believe about God's word and what it reveals. And it is why we have written out confessions and creeds and catechisms and statements of faith. And it is why we articulate position papers on various cultural hot-button issues. What does the scripture have to say to this moment in time that we're living in? Because we have a deep desire to be men and women rightly applying the word of God, we want to be people of the book. And here's where we've got to be willing to do the hard work of theological triage. Because the unity of the Spirit demands a shared set of beliefs. The unity of the Spirit demands a shared set of beliefs. Now, let me ask you this question, however. How much agreement must we have in order to have fellowship? How much agreement must we have in order to share Fellowship. So let me ask it this way. If, is it possible for two brothers and sisters in Christ to disagree on a theological issue and yet maintain a deep and abiding unity of relationship, attend the same church, partner in ministry, pray for one another, love one another, cheer one another on, and yet they disagree on some theological issue? Is that possible? Well, if you're a rational person, you know that this is the only way it can be, right? There is actually no other way we can possibly live our lives because if we demand that everyone agree with us on every fine point of doctrine, our circle of fellowship is going to be very, very small. In fact, after all these years in ministry, I have found that there are only three people that I agree with 100% of the time. It's only three. It's a very small circle. There are three people 100% of the time I have found that I agree with, me, myself, and I. And it's a cozy little circle. And so the question, can good Christians, good Bible-believing Christians, disagree with one another and yet claim to be unified? So Augustine is credited with this statement uh, in Essentials, Unity, etc. And, and also Martin Luther and John Wesley are credited with this statement. So some smart person said this, in Essentials, Unity. In Non-Essentials, Liberty. In All Things, charity. So in other words, in key doctrines, in closed-handed, those macro doctrines, we must have agreement. On secondary issues, we give freedom for people to have various opinions. And we don't have time to travel down this road very long. So you already heard about the Apologetics Canada conference coming up. That would be a great resource. And can we trust the Bible? But let me just put another book on the screen. If you want a good little read, it's short. It's a, a, a light read. Gavin Ortland's book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And he gives four categories of doctrine. First rank doctrines, he says, are essential to the gospel. Second rank doctrines are urgent for the church, but not essential to the gospel. Third rank doctrines are important to Christian theology, but not essential to the gospel and not necessarily urgent for the church, and then fourth-ranked doctrines are indifferent. They're theologically unimportant. Now you're like, okay, illustrate that for me. Tell me what you're talking about, buddy. And he does. So first-ranked doctrines would be those closed-handed ones where we say we cannot give way on these. So things like the Trinity, the inspiration of Scripture, the atonement through Jesus Christ alone. Those are closed-handed issues that we cannot give ground on. Second-ranked issues would be things like the mode of baptism. Every Christian group in the world baptizes in water, but you're like, how do you baptize? Do you sprinkle? Do you pour? Do you immerse? 
And if you immerse, do you immerse backwards or forwards? And if you immerse, do you immerse just once or do you immerse three times? Father, Son, and Spirit, because some do. So we can disagree on the modes of baptism, but it is not central to the gospel. You're with me on that. Third rank would be other issues like, let's talk about end times. Let's talk about the questions of the millennium, the thousand-year reign. Is that literal? Is it a metaphor? Etc. Those are third-order issues. And then fourth-rank doctrines are just sort of those indifferent things, the things that we are curious about, we might talk about, we might disagree about. They're interesting but not important. So you might say, how many angels are there? Now, that might be interesting, and it might be worth digging in. It might be even worth having an opinion about, but at the end of the day, it does not affect how we do ministry. Or you might say, what style of music should we use in worship? Well, if you think back through 2,000 years of church history, you will know that every type of music, and maybe even somewhere in the world, they tried to sing country music unto God's (laughs) praise. Who knows? But even there... We can have differing opinions and yet be unified. So he raises two theological dangers, and we might call them ditches or traps. He says this, the danger of doctrinal sectarianism and the danger of doctrinal minimalism. And they're very self-explanatory. You can look at them and see what it means. A sectarian is a person or a group that demands a rigid agreement on all levels of theology. In other words, every doctrine is now raised to the level of a first-order doctrine. And not only must you agree with me on the biggies like inspiration of scripture, the Trinity, and the atonement, but you must also agree with my opinion, my understanding of baptism, end times, creation theories, the role of women in the church, the debate between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, and the list could go on and on and on and on. And if you disagree with me on any of these issues, you are clearly a heretic, and I will break fellowship with you. Doctrinal sectarianism. So is it any wonder when Paul was counseling two young pastors, two guys probably in their early 30s, Titus and Timothy, and he said to them so many times, so many warnings to avoid divisive doctrinaire type people. In those three letters, there are over a dozen warning statements. Let me just put one on the screen. They have an unhealthy craving. Literally, they crave for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. In other words, these people are disturbers. You might add another word on the front of that. Don't get sucked into their vortex. The other extreme on the other end is doctrinal minimalism. People who say, really, does doctrine matter? Does theology matter? Really, can't we just stop dividing over this stuff? It just hurts people. Is theology all that important? Can't we just get on with loving Jesus and feeding the poor and just doing ministry? Stop talking about theology all the time. And so we have got to do the hard work and the heavy lifting. Because if not, we'll be driven along by every wind of doctrine or every wind of culture as the tides ebb and flow in the ever-shifting day that we live in. So the basis of our unity must be this book, must be our relationship to the Word of God. Secondly, this unity is grounded in the presence of God, and that's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Jesus makes it so very clear. I've manifested your name to them. I've shown myself. I've put the glory of the Godhead on display. 
Verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. They've seen your glory, Father. They've seen a glimpse of it, at least, in my words and in my works. And what I so desperately want them to know and experience is the love that we share, Father, the love between Father, Son, and Spirit, the unity, the oneness, the fellowship that has been ours since the foundation of the world, that we are one, so too may they be one. And unto what end? That the world may see and know the love of God. That as a watching world looks at my people, they will know the love of God. And so friends, this is why the pursuit of the glory of God must be our never ending pursuit. The glory of God literally lived out through our lives. Now glory is an amazing word. It carries with it the idea of a weightiness and heaviness, of honor, of beauty, of splendor, and of praise, glory, glory, praise. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day poureth forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Psalm 98, 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy unto the Lord. In other words, nature speaks to us. Creation speaks to us of the glory of our creator. And in those moments, we are overwhelmed and we are moved. And it could be anything from the stunning beauty of snow-capped mountains to a sunset on a tropical beach to the Arizona desert when it is in bloom and you are like, oh, there is a God. Stunned by the glory of creation. You've been there, right? When you are just in awe of God's beautiful creation. But what we get in creation is just a glimpse of the glory of God. All the way through the Bible, from beginning to end, you have this desire for the glory of God. Moses in Exodus 33, God, show me your glory. And God says, you know what? No sinful person can stand in the presence of an infinitely holy God, but I'll cover you over in the cleft of the rock and I'll just pass by. You'll get a glimpse of my glory. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the the cloud and the thunder and the lightning descends so much so that the people are afraid to approach the hill. When he comes back down, his face is literally radiant. It is glowing so brightly that the people are now afraid of Moses. They ask him to cover his face because they can't stand to be in the glory that he is exuding. Ezekiel, five times talks about the the vision of going into the presence of God. And in every one of those visions, he ends up face down. He uses that phrase, face down. Face down in worship before a holy God. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, I saw the glory of the Lord. High and lifted up, his robe filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I was undone, he says. Woe is me. I'm a sinful man with unclean lips until that angel reaches out and cleanses his lips. And so we know that Jesus veiled his glory. That Jesus comes to us, Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself. He veiled his glory so that he could walk among us, that we could literally stand to be with him in flesh. And what the context of John 17 tells us in part is that God's plan is to put his glory on display through his people. In other words, he wants us to grow with the presence and the beauty of the Godhead, he, he literally wants us to glow. Now, I know that it's a metaphor, so stay with me. I get that. But there are others like it. 2 Corinthians 2 says we're the aroma of Christ. We're the aroma, the smell of Christ. 
among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. From the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? So you think about these metaphors, and you might hear people say, your Christianity stinks because of whatever impression they have seen or heard of it. Is there a sweet aroma, a sweet, sweet presence among the people of God? And in this context, is there a glow about the people of God? Because what Jesus is saying here in John 17 is this other aspect, this other metaphor, the display of God's glory, that it will be seen through his people, that there will be something. It will be intangible for sure, but it will be very, very real. That there is something literally emanating from the fellowship, the unity, and the beauty of God's people. And so Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. We could ask the opposite question. What happens when we refuse to pursue unity? Does the blessing that is commanded get lifted? So 2 Corinthians 3, I love this text. New Testament work of the Spirit. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. Now, the context there is a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And literally, it tells the story of how Moses comes down off Mount Sinai and he veils his face while the glory is fading away. And that even today, when the old covenant is read, a veil covers people's eyes. But in the new covenant, now look at this work, the glory doesn't fade, the glory gets more and more and more and more. In other words, the more time we spend with Jesus, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we're immersed in his word, the deeper the transformational work of God in our lives, the more we become like him, the more his glory is on display. Literally, the more we glow with the glory of God, from glory unto glory, ever-increasing glory glory. Amen? Woo! This is great. So back when I was doing my uh, one-year pastoral internship, Bible school's done, you got to do a year internship, home church. I remember sitting in the boardroom, we got to sit in on meetings, and there was a poster on the wall, and for whatever reason, that poster has stuck in my brain, and it is a paraphrase of this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and it goes like this, the child of God looking into the word of God is changed by the spirit of God into the image of God unto the glory of God. I like that. The child of God looking into the word of God is changed by the spirit of God into the image of God and unto the glory of God. Is that not a great paraphrase? Ever increasing glory. The more time I spend in his presence, the more he transforms me into his likeness unto his glory. That in that transformation, the world looks at the unity, the love that we share, and there's something magnetic about it. Not because of us, but because the glory is on display. And so Jesus' prayer ends right there in verse 23. I want them to be perfectly united in love just as we are so that the world may know. So he's done praying for us and then he talks to the Father for three more verses. A little bit of a coda, a reprise, the final words. And if we were to summarize it down to this one simple phrase, it would be this, oh Father, I want them to see my glory I so desperately want to show them my glory. Lord, I would just love to pull back the veil that they could see my glory. And as we hear him talking, as we hear his heart cry, as his children, I think that we are similarly moved and we should be moved to say, Jesus, would you show us your glory? 
The glory you had with the Father before the foundation of the world, the glory that you set aside so that you could walk among us, the glory that we know we will one day enjoy when we see you face to face. Oh God, pull back the curtain so we can see it. So the Celtic believers, so back the Celts and the, you know, northern uh, Scotland, England, Ireland, that group, you know, the Celts, okay? They talked about thin places, thin places. And they described the thin place like this. It's the place where the veil between heaven and earth is so thin, it is almost translucent. You can almost see into eternity. Uh, We would call them mountaintop experiences, right? You've all probably had that. You're like, I never felt closer to God than in whatever that moment happened to be. A time where the glory of the Lord was so real. So 1 John 3 says, Beloved, we're God's children. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Amazing. So Phil Wickham's uh, song, Hymn of Heaven, has become kind of a favorite around here the last couple years or so. How I long to breathe the air of heaven. And the chorus says, there will be a day when all bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with him who died and rose again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Oh God, I want to see your glory. Now I mentioned before that every encounter with the glory of God, people ended up on their face in worship. But there is also another outcome. If you walk back through every one of those cases, you will see those very same individuals were lifted up and sent out commissioned. So Moses is standing at the burning bush. Take off your shoes, it's holy ground. And then in the very next paragraph, he's like, now go, I'm sending you to deliver my people from Egypt. Isaiah, who is in the throne room, overwhelmed with the glory of God. The angel touches his lips. You're now clean, you're pure. And who will I send for me even now? Send me, Lord, send me. Ezekiel falls down in worship before a holy God and five times God keeps picking him up. There's, there's one that's quite uh, funny, actually. It's like by the scruff of the neck, he picks me up. It's like, get up off the feet. I got work for you to do. John, the same guy who writes this gospel, will later write the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation. In the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I was overwhelmed and I fell before him. And it literally says, and he says to me, get up, get up and write. So being in the presence of God, I've come to believe this. Every encounter we have with the glory of God is meant to equip us and send us out on mission. The encounter is never an end in itself. It is never just give me another bless me session. Give me another taste of the glory of God. No, it's to commission us and send us out under the glory of God that the world might know. And so how do we tie a bow in this? John 17 Jesus first prays for himself in the opening five verses. He then prays for the disciples in front of him, verses 6 to 19. Then he prays for us, the text we've looked at tonight. And then finally, we hear Jesus' heart cry, Oh, Father, I so desperately want them to see my glory, to get our eyes on Jesus and see his glory. Okay, one last thought. 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection text, but there's a very interesting comment in the middle of it about the end times. There's this little phrase that says, and then the end will come. 
Just before it, it says, he must reign, he is reigning, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and then the end will come. Like, well, then when is the end going to come? When Jesus is finally in control of everything. Now, I like how Hebrews 2 puts it when it says this, at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Is that not a realistic statement? You're like, okay, we don't see it yet. Not everything is under his control, but we see him. There's a lot of mess in the world. There's a lot of chaos going on. There's a lot of stuff that is yet not obviously under the control. And yet he who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. In other words, we fix our eyes not on the world, but we get our eyes up and onto Jesus. The upward look of the church. Oh God, recenter my focus. Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus seated at the Father's right hand. Jesus interceding, advocating for us. And the more we press into the beauty and the glory and the splendor of Jesus, the more we see the unity and the oneness and the love of the Godhead, the more our love overflows for one another and for our lost world. Oh, Father, I am praying for them that they might be one so that the world will know. Our unity in Christ is, or should be, an expression of the life of God. It is a vital way in which the invisible God manifests or makes visible his own nature here on earth. The church is, or should be, the word made flesh for today. Others should be able to look at our fellowship of love and say, that's what God is like. It'll not be the total truth about an infinite God, of course, but it will be perhaps the most meaningful and relevant truth that can touch the minds and hearts of all people of all races, backgrounds, cultures, and languages. Love is a universal language. God's love amongst God's people is always the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. So let me ask you the very personal question. Is there somebody in your circle of fellowship with which you've divided over some secondary, unnecessary issue? And let me ask you this question. Are they going to be in heaven with you? Do you believe that they believe the rock solid, the non-negotiable truths of the word, and you're going to spend eternity with them, and yet you vary on your opinion on some secondary issue, and you have broken fellowship? Can you come back together and say, oh, brother, oh, sister, we're going to spend eternity together. We might as well fellowship here too. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Uh, so Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit, you would bind us together. We see and we hear your heart cry here on the last evening before your crucifixion, how you, you poured your heart out to the Father and you cried out for not only the ones standing in front of you in that moment, but for us, the ones who would believe because of their testimony. And you prayed that we would be one that we would be unified in the very same way that you, the Father, and the Spirit are unified as one. And that in that unity that the world would know. And so, Lord, I pray for the men and women of our congregation. That you would bind us together in our understanding. That you would get our roots down deep into good, sound doctrine and theology. That we would understand the closed-hand issues that we cannot give ground on. And then that we would give grace. And that we would have a lot of fun. It's, it's fun to wrestle with these other issues and to go, you know what, in the end, we're going to find it out. And in the meanwhile, to share unity and love between us. And then, Lord, I pray that you would use your church, not just Northview Church, but your church across the nation, 
that the unity of God's people, the love of God's people would spill out, that there would be a glow coming out from your church that would be a magnetic attraction to the world around us. And so we commit ourselves unto that in Jesus' name. Amen.